On a warm afternoon in July of 1812, a poet named George Gordon Byron packed his suitcase and fled his home in Newston, England. You may know George Gordon Byron, better known as Lord Byron, famous poet and author of Don Juan. Lord Byron had got himself into a messy, destructive, and dysfunctional relationship, and now he had a chance to make a clean break. On his table were stacks of possessive letters from a married woman named Carolyn Lamb. Lamb was on her way to stop Byron from leaving town, and if she couldn't stop Byron from leaving, she would make a scene, a scene that would destroy both their reputations. Byron's friend and fellow lord, John Hobhouse, was helping Byron pack his bags to escape. As Byron's wingman, Hobhouse warned his friend not to respond to the letters, not to talk to Karen Lamb again, and to get out of this dysfunctional relationship they had built together at any cost. But just as Hobhouse and Byron were leaving with their things, Carolyn arrived. She knocked on Byron's door, and Byron's servants were shocked by what they saw. Carolyn Lamb was wearing a disguise. She was dressed in servant's clothes, and she had a crowd of people behind her, gathered from around the village. So any rejection by Byron would make a scene. When Byron refused to acknowledge her, Carolyn grabbed a knife and threatened to stab herself if he didn't come back to her. This is the same woman who, a month later, would send him an envelope stuffed with pubic hair and blood. You're listening to The Reengineered You. This is a podcast about self-empowerment and all the myths, lies, misconceptions we tell ourselves. Then we use science and history to bust those myths and re-engineer a better you. My name is Todd Laments. I am the extrovert. And I am joined by researcher, writer, and introvert, Joe Anthony. Good evening, Todd. Dysfunctional relationships are easy to spot, right? Everyone around Byron and Carolyn could see that their relationship was unhealthy from the start. Carolyn was unhappily married to a husband who cheated on her and abused her. And Carolyn had an autistic child at home who needed her. She was also known to fall into reckless obsessions, the kind of reckless obsessions that would drive her to write dozens of unwanted love letters. Then we have Lord Byron, a famous womanizer. This is a man who treated his mistresses like conquest and threw them away when he was done with them. Together, these two were like dynamite and gasoline, and everyone saw the disaster coming. But that's a myth we tell ourselves, right? Dysfunction is easy to spot. Dysfunctional relationships are obvious. It's easy to identify dysfunction in other people's behavior. That's why we could never fall into it ourselves. We would never date Carolyn Lamb or a Lord Byron. Today, we'll explore the myth that we can identify a Byron or Carolyn before we date them. And we'll look at what makes a dysfunctional partner act dysfunctional in the first place. We'll also learn the warning signs that tell us we're in a dysfunctional relationship and when it's time to skip town. And lastly, we'll answer the $1 million question. If you choose not to leave a dysfunctional relationship, can you make it work again? Or is it all hopeless after we've passed the blood and hair in the male phase?
First up, the myth that you and I, as rational human beings, could never fall for a dysfunctional partner. Okay, so first off, uh, before we get to the research, I just want to ask you real quick. Have you seen the movie Don Juan with Justin Govern Lovett? I have not. Okay, so I haven't seen it either, but I did watch the trailers because I wanted to know who Don Juan was. Aside from the actual Don Juan from the poem, the the wiki that he never finished. Yeah. So I'm just going to imagine in my head, Joseph Gord Lovett, every time we talk about him. <laughs> okay. If that's okay with you. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> Whatever gets you through. <laughs> I need to have a mental image. So um, to research this, I started looking into something called the familiarity principle. I think the full title is the familiarity, familiarity principle of attraction. Have you heard of uh, the familiarity principle? No, I have. What is it? So the idea that uh, it's from psychology today, and it's about behavior psychology and how we get used to people's behaviors. And the familiarity principle is that when we see a behavior and it's repeated to us at a young age over and over, we become attracted to it. Okay. So like, imagine like your father or mother and their repetitious behavior. That's why women look for a guy just like their dad. Exactly. And a man looks for someone just like his mother, which is very true. Even though they might hate the qualities they had, they right. end up with someone almost a brother or twin to them. Right, yeah. And it's it's eerie when you look at family photos and somebody's getting married and their wife looks like the mother who's standing <laughs> right next to them. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, so it's, it's not just physical traits. We do that with um, behaviors, too. Okay. Some and, good and some bad, I'm guessing. Right, yeah. Hopefully, the good ones are the ones we are attracted to, but we are, we are in fact, equally attracted to both. That's interesting. And the, that, that kind of falls for me into a no-duh category. Like I, I, When people tell me that, I'm like, yeah, of course. Like That makes perfect sense. But the part that I did not pick up on, and the thing that I think really helped me improve as a person, is understanding how many of those behaviors fly under the radar. Like alcoholism. Yeah, that aren't just totally visible, obvious character flaws, but... Right. Subconscious and then just daily behaviors that you wouldn't see unless you're close to the person. Right, exactly. If you're watching like shows like Roseanne or Shameless, where it's like dysfunctional families, you look at that and you're like, well, of course they're attracted to that because they're used to it. And it's the obvious behaviors. It's the alcoholism, it's the screaming, it's the the very, you know, outward things. Right. But the parts that really got to me is criticisms and lack of empathy and control. These are things that are more subtle that I realized my family had. Okay. So like my family, um, I don't know if I've talked about this, but if we were in the Olympics, it would be for criticism. <laughs> You're that good at it? Right, yeah. It's, it's whatever you did that's uh, noteworthy, we will just criticize the parts that you kind of flubbed. Like if you're in a spelling bee, you can win it, but we will discuss how you stuttered. So you're looking for it all the time. Right, exactly. It, and you're, you're, you're practiced this for years. And right, you, yeah. You pass it on to your kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most people, when they're training for like football, <laughs> they run through tires. Yeah. I just criticize people <laughs> mentally as I watch them. Yeah, I noticed. I work with you. I already knew this. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that, that comes out sometimes. But uh but but that's that that's the um, one of the most obvious ones. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Like I am now because of that attracted to people who uh, show criticism. I view that as intelligent. I view that as you know they they have good judgment. But in reality, what it is is it's just familiarity to my parents. 
the pessimistic people can come off to me that way as being negative. Right. They're really just stoic and, like you said, detailed. Right, exactly. I see them as pointing at, pointing at the weeds and not noticing the flowers kind of stuff. Right, precisely. And that kind of repetitious behavior, that's what we become attracted to. And it, it, it becomes uh, aggrandized, too. Like, if you watch the show Sherlock, Sherlock is ultra-critical all the time, never says a positive thing. And people watching that show, I'm betting they had critical parents and that they enjoy it because of reasons they don't understand. That's interesting, the detail of it. And I've never, I never knew that, that 50% of the things are good and 50 things are bad. It doesn't discriminate to what you're attracted to. And it's not just your romantic relationship. It's probably all your relationships, right? Right, exactly. Friends too. And that's, um, if you look at the familiarity principle, it talks exactly about that, that it can be, um, your partners will have shared traits to your family. So do your friends. You're basically selecting a tribe that emulates the behaviors of your family. Good and bad. Right, exactly. So what were the familiar behaviors Carolyn and Byron found in each other? Well, Carolyn Lamb had cheating, addicted, dysfunctional parents. Her father was the Earl of Bessborough, and her mother was Henrietta Ponsonby, the niece of a duchess. Despite her parents standing in wealth, Carolyn wasn't given much of a formal education. As a child, she was witty and smart. But her parents thought these traits made her willful and reckless. When Carolyn misbehaved, they would sometimes use laudanum to calm her down. Cheating, neglectful parents from noble families. Sounds a bit like our Lord Byron, doesn't it? Lord Byron's father, on the other hand, was Captain John Byron. John was the grandson of a baron and he was known for seducing married women, Byron's mother being one of them. John Byron was also known to be brutal and vicious to his lovers after the initial seduction was over. John's nickname in the British Guard was Mad Jack, if that tells you anything. Byron's mother was seduced away from her marriage, and his father was a cruel cheater. No wonder a woman like Carolyn hit all of Byron's buttons. Myth two, identifying a dysfunctional relationship. This mutual familiarity would explain why Byron and Carolyn put up with each other's dysfunction. But Byron should have realized they were incompatible long before he needed to skip town. Carolyn was known to go waltzing at parties with other men to make Byron jealous. And I mean actually waltzing. Since Byron was born with a deformed foot, he couldn't dance. Seeing Carolyn waltz with handsome lords was an extra slap in the face, even if it was a deserved slap. To be fair, Carolyn should have seen Byron's dysfunction too. He flirted shamelessly with other women. He cheated on his lovers, and he insulted women he found to be ugly or plain. Byron once told a mutual friend that Carolyn had scarcely any personal attractions to recommend her. So why couldn't these two see the dysfunction of their relationship? Were they blinded by lust? Or did they willfully ignore the warning signs? How could we, if we were in a dysfunctional relationship, identify it? Okay, so real quick, before I get to the science of dysfunction again, uh, I got to ask, how did he keep getting these women? Well, for starters, he looked like 
a model. And he was famous like a rock star. Poets at that time, you know, there's different, there wasn't that much different entertainments. People would stay up and read his books. So he was famous and good looking. Right. So he's like a Tom Cruise, but a lead guitarist too. Exactly. We, did. we don't have those kind of stars anymore. Yeah, well said. Okay, so uh, so I would probably fall for a Byron. Anybody would. <laughs> Everyone's susceptible to Byromania, basically. Absolutely. So he'd have it, millions of Twitter followers, right? <laughs> yeah, the the Twitter Byron. Uh, if somebody doesn't already have that as a Twitter account, <laughs> we're making it. <laughs> so um, we already talked about too many criticisms. How that can like kill a relationship, right? It sounds like from your research into Byron, he was full of criticism. He was um, from his from himself, um, the, the way he was raised, from the abuse he saw, and then his personal, you know, his his handicapped. I get that, and his view of women. He was very, very critical of women. Yeah, it sounds like his his insults to his friend about Carolyn that did not sound very flattering. And only after he got him in bed, he was a true Don Juan charmer. Until then, okay, use well, him up and throw him away, kind of guy. If you look up pictures of him, I had to look up a couple pictures before we started this just because I wanted the full Byron effect. I wanted, I wanted that that shine in my, my <laughs> eyes. Um, I noticed that he's always sort of smiling in profile. And that's something, um, it struck me. Have you heard of uh, micro-expressions? No. What is it? Okay, so um, there's this research uh, that came out by um, Ekman. Uh, actually, uh, the... There's a fictional character, Cal Lightman, from a show, Lie to Me. And it was all about micro-expression, that this guy had superhuman abilities to read people's expressions and know when they're lying. Not a great show. I mean, the first season was good, but they kind of taper off from there. Um, but this also comes up in uh, Gladwell's book, Blink, where they, they look at micro-expressions, and it's second by second what your face is doing unconsciously. So it's not just the standing with your arms crossed. This is like real science. Right, right. You're engaging people. So they record people and they watch their face in motion as they uh, process things. And your face makes these little ticks and tweaks and it changes emotions hyper rapidly without you knowing it. Like if you frown or smile, you can feel that. But there's all these little micro expressions you make without feeling it. And they were able to um, look at dysfunctional relationships Actually, they're look, looking at relationships in general, trying to find dysfunction. And they found out the one micro-expression that uh, shows that a relationship is not going to last is disgust. Uh, okay, disgust. When you're kind of fed up that you just don't care anymore, that you look at the person, the love is, love is lost. Right, it's exactly. It's gross. Yeah, 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 disgusted. Yeah, grossed out by somebody. Like, you, you, you can't even listen to their voice anymore. Yeah. Yeah, and that's probably, that's a good way to put it. It's not just them. It's right. everything they do. Their smell, their, <laughs> right, right. their smell, their sound, right. their sight. Yeah. Speaking of uh, my, my personal vision of Byron, uh, Joseph Gordon Lovett, there's a movie with him, 500 Days of Summer, and he starts that movie talking about like how lovely every little tick of this woman is who's infatuated with. He's like, I love her birthmark. I love the way she chews. I love everything about her. And then by the end of it, it's disgust. <laughs> it's every single one of these things is just disgusting to the ultimate for him. Now, I'm no psychologist, but is it possible that he's trying to make up for his childhood and everything with these women that he thinks they're going to fill this role? And when they don't, they're less than garbage. He wasted that time and that attention on somebody who didn't solve his pain. 
Exactly. Yeah, it's familiarity principle again. He's he's attracted to things that he sees. They're going to solve or fill something for him, and then he's d- disillusioned, basically. So when we see this discussed, and it really sounds like Byron started having it for Carolyn, and possibly vice versa near the end, that's what we're seeing is is this disgust micro expression. And this is going to make a lot of people listening to this stare at their partners while they're eating. <laughs> this is, this is going to make people kind of ultra paranoid about their partner, but it's, it's disgust in general. It's not just the micro expression. So you don't have to, you have to look super close. But, when, but there's no reason to try to, to work it out at that point. You got to just hire a good divorce attorney and move on. Right. That's a divorce in, you're dead, right? Right. That's, a divorce attorney or someone to help you work through the disgust. Yeah. 94% is pretty high. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's 94% predictability at that point. And you point. can't kind of discuss someone. Either you discuss them or you don't. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's not mild disgust over a partner. Uh, something else I read uh, when I was looking up microexpressions and predictability for uh, behavior problems in, in relationships was um, something called um, familiar unnoticed expressions. So this also comes from Science Daily. And the idea is um, if your expressions of love go unnoticed, you start building resent. And they, they tested people and they, they polled them and they found out that people that have low self-esteem are the most susceptible to this. So if you know you have low self-esteem, not, not saying you do, just people in general, if you're a low self-esteem person, every time your expressions of love go ignored, it just builds that resentment and you start watching for the disgust. You start watching for these micro-expressions. So you become super, you know, and I've done this in my life where um, with my ex-wife, where if I did something, I'd always have to get credit for it. So instead of just being a normal man and doing something, I would want her to know and, <laughs> right. and to get some kind of reward or some kind of attention from her. Right, so. yeah. You you do the dishes and then you like put them out on the counter so she sees it. <laughs> oh, honey, you did the dishes and then right. I feel fine. But if she doesn't say that, so what what you're saying is if she doesn't say that, I start to get more and more resentments towards her and think, you know, she doesn't appreciate me. And then then maybe that disgust starts to creep in eventually. Right, exactly. Yeah, you, you you start building that resentment if she doesn't notice. So if she doesn't see you mowing the lawn. It's like the Godfather. She wakes up with a lawnmower in the bed. Like it's, you have to, you have to let her see it. So these, um, these expressions, the negative expressions, even the negative behaviors and microexpressions, those all still fall under the umbrella of familiarity. So the familiarity principle, all of these can be under that umbrella. You can have all of these go, uh, not just unnoticed, but you like them if you've seen them in your family. So again, this. Again, it sounds like a no dot first until you start breaking this down. But when you start seeing those behaviors, those those the self-esteem, the lack of it, watching other people not accept your expressions of love, it can all sort of roll into this big ball of, well, my family's like this. So this is what love looks like. And they probably, when you have two people who've had extreme ones like Carolyn and Lord Byron, they, they've had such extreme ones. So those get together. It really is like fire and gasoline. Right, yeah. It's just, so, it's just so deep and it's so dark, you know. Right, yeah. For me, my background is like, well, I'll accept criticism in a partner. For them, it's they'll accept raging alcoholism, laudanum addiction, and wild cheating and insults. So their their bar is quite high for this. And throw a little incest in there, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we already know Byron was a negative expressor. Byron once tried to force Carolyn into admitting that she loved him 
more than her own husband. When she refused, Byron told her, My God, you shall pay for this. I'll wring that abstinent little heart. On to myth three. Dysfunctional relationships are doomed, and people who stay in them are nuts. Carolyn and Byron's dysfunctional relationship could have lasted a lifetime, except Byron ended it by trying to marry Carolyn's cousin in 1814, right under Carolyn's nose. After that, the two began to sabotage each other in far more serious ways. They started spreading nasty rumors about each other in public. After Carolyn accused Byron of criminal incest and of corrupting young boys, there would be no reconciling. Finally, the two were finished, and they would remain enemies until Byron's death at the age of 36. So how doomed are people who stay in dysfunctional relationships? Could Byron and Carolyn ever have made it work again? And if they stayed together, could they have turned their relationship healthy? So this is the part that really got me interested. I'm not saying that I want to make dysfunctional relationships work but I am interested to figure out how, if I wanted to. Um, That's a million dollar question too. It it is. Yeah. Because there's that passion and flame too, that you only get when you. Right. Exactly. Like when two crazy people meet, it it (laughs) makes the best kind of crazy. Yeah, (laughs) It's exciting. Right. So the, the idea is you, you never want to stay in a um, abusive relationship or a relationship that is, doomed or or that will cause more damage than good. But if you think you've got something worth saving, this is what I found. And I I think it's valuable. So there's uh, something called the golden ratio. And I read this off of um, uh, a study by Gottman and Levinson. And the golden ratio is exactly what we were talking about earlier, which is criticism. Um, the, The idea that we become familiar with criticism from our family means that we're more accepting of it and it's familiar and it feels good to us to hear criticism. It's, it's like hearing truth. You ever hear somebody say like, I tell it how it is. Yes. Or I, I'm, I'm, I try to be straight with people. Yes. That's a defense of criticism. That's like, if you hear somebody say that it's a warning sign, they're holding up a big red flag. It's like saying, do you want me to lie to you? Right. Or yeah. no, do you want me to tell you the truth? That's the one that gets me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I want you to lie to me. Continue to lie to me. Right. I'm going to tell you the truth. It, it usually should be uh, accompanied with an asterisk that says, I'm about to criticize you. <laughs> so um, in 1970, Gottman and Levinson, uh, they sat people down and they gave them uh, relationship stuff to solve, conflicts to solve. And they gave them 15 minutes and they watched them and they watched the videos. And after they reviewed the tapes, uh, they found uh, like up to nine years later, they, they gave it a time span they found out that the people who uh, criticize themselves less than once for every five positive interactions, they stayed together with almost 90% accuracy. So uh, to state that again, um, if they use the golden ratio, meaning they say five good things for every one criticism or one negative thing, they made it work. So there's like a bank account of good and bad. And so if you stay five times, your balance is five times higher. This is going to last. You're going to be okay. You don't have to be perfect. Right. But you're going to make it. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's not like a 50-50. It's way skewed toward the positive. You have to be five times more positive than every one criticism you have. And that's how I've kind of looked at it is, is one to one, right? Right. You do something. 
especially if you're in an unhealthy relationship, you do something bad, really bad, you make up for it by buying them something or taking them on right. a date to a special restaurant. Yeah, one horrible thing you've said about their mother is one bouquet of roses. That's <laughs> that's my math. But uh, I was shocked to find that one-to-one is not accurate. And, and it's funny that you is. say that because instinctively, I actually did kind of feel like that. Like if I say in my own way, I, I'm critical. It's like trained baseball cards. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You, can, you can have this insult and then I will pay you a compliment later if I remember. And I don't want them to do any damage and let's forget about it. I said I was sorry. Right, yeah. <laughs> and and there is that math too. It's there's like, no I already hangover. said I'm sorry. Yeah, like, there's, no, there's no hangover. There's no yeah. right. carryover. <laughs> but uh, no, it's it's five to one. And, and that takes, um, from what I have looked at in my own life and from what I've read, it takes a tremendous amount of awareness. Like you have to really commit to being aware that you're making that many criticisms or that you're making that many positive comments that when you're self-monitoring and you have the willingness to self-monitor, I mean, it sounds almost absurd, like telling your partner, hey, I want you to keep track of five positive things you say for one negative. They'd make fun of you, right? Right. And a lot of times it's misinterpreted. Our intents on thing was positive, but it, it wasn't it wasn't taken that way. It was right. taken as a negative or too negative sometimes. Right. Even bringing this up, I mean, unless you literally make them listen to this podcast or show them the research, then it, it, it almost is arrogant to start bringing this up, to be like, hey, I've been mean to talk to you. Do you say five good things to me for every one uh, criticism? So uh, it's, it's, again, they need, they it takes a lot of self-awareness. That, an Apple Watch to measure those. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, where's my, uh, my step counter for criticisms? <laughs> like, uh, that's what I need. <laughs> But uh, yeah, they, that's the golden ratio. And that golden ratio, I mean, we this podcast is about self-improvement and taking that from history and science. And that's that's helped me so much learning this one. That's interesting. It is. If you're in a dysfunctional relationship, your best advantage is awareness. Try to be aware of negative expressions, both yours and your partner's. Don't keep a score of who insulted who, but watch for opportunities where you can use more positive expressions. Be aware of your worth. Be aware of any disgust being displayed by either partner. And be aware of any dysfunctional behaviors that you find comforting. Because some of those behaviors were familiar to you already. And if you ever find yourself stuffing envelopes with blood and hair, or dumping lighter fluid on someone's clothes in the front lawn. Remember, there are healthcare professionals to help you. And they're just a phone call away. 